1 through 7. Psalm 34, verses 1 through 7. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Of course, our text today is Genesis, and I was led to that verse while con- contemplating uh, these, this text out of Genesis chapter 14, the entirety of the verse. We could maybe say that the, we would have headings of a war, a rescue, and a blessing for this text. And that would certainly be correct. But I would propose that this text is all about a blessing. And hopefully we'll be able to see how that plays out in this narrative. Perhaps the heading that you have in your scripture is War of the Kings. Uh, You might have other breakdowns in there that would talk about the rescue of Lot and God's promise to Abram. But nonetheless, the title is Blessings from Heaven. And I'm going to stick with that as we go through this text It says in chapter 14, verse 1, And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, and Kedorlaomer, excuse me, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and title king of Golim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemabar, king of Zebulim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. It is quite a list of names that we have in the beginning. All Amorites that we would see. uh, Descendants of the line of Ham. It gives us a little precursor into the war that's coming. It tells us that they are warring against both the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. We know them as a wicked land. We were told that in the previous chapter, verse 13 uh, of chapter 13. It says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. We would understand because the men are wicked that that would also mean their kings, their leaders are wicked too. As the land is, the land is led by the leaders. Whatever the land is doing, whatever the people of the land are doing is authorized by those leaders in the land. So we can assume, rightly, that the king of Sodom was a wicked man. We want to keep that in our minds right up at the top. We're going to come back to that much, much later on in the verses when we talk more about him. But this is a wicked land who these other kings, key king there is, Kedor Leomar, the king of Elam, 
he seems to be the leader of these group of other kings who are going to be warring against them. We could ask ourselves, since we're only really going to hear about them here, why is it in the Scripture? Well, it's in the Scripture because God desired it to be there. Because God, we're learning something about what is happening here from this Scripture. These specifically named kings. It tells us from verse 2 and 3 that Bera the king of Sodom with Birsha the king of Gomorrah and Shinab the king of Adma, and Shemabar the king of Zebulun, Zebulun and the king of Bela that is Zoar that all these in verse 3 came as allies to the valley of Siddur that is the Salt Sea probably in the area of what we're referring to today as the Red Sea that this is the area that they, they've come together as allies, but as is typical of Hebrew writing, he has laid out, Moses, in these words from the Lord, has laid out some, some, some boundaries for us, and now he's going to tell us a little bit more before we come back to those people. Typical of Hebrew-style writing, what we see here. It says in verse 4, Twelve years they served Kedor Leomer. Twelve years, these ones that have come as allies, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they served Kedor Leomer. But in the thirteenth year they rebelled. What we find here is that somehow uh, they had come into what would be referred to as a suzerain vassal treaty. Fancy word, the suzerain being the large king and the vassals being the smaller kings or smaller kingdoms. When it says they served him, he was their suzerain, the one they reported to, the one that they paid tribute to, the one that, that part of their earnings always went to. It would have gone to the suzerain for protection. Okay? That means that Kedor Leomar would have been the protector or the head protector of these smaller kingdoms. They would have been underneath his umbrella of protection. But at some point along the way, after 12 years, they decided, we don't like this arrangement anymore. This arrangement is not working out well for us. We are going to stop paying. We're no longer going to be considered vassals. We're no longer going to be considered under their protection. We are coming together as allies ourselves, probably knowing that it will bring war to their doorstep. It will bring war to their doorstep. But remember, I said in the beginning that this is, uh, this all of 14 is about blessings from heaven. And you might not be seeing it yet. However, I would remind you of Isaiah 46.10. It is not on the screen, but I would remind you of 46, Isaiah 46.10. Always good in times of trouble to remind us of 46.10. You may wish to circle it in your scripture. 
It says there about God, about Yahweh, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. The Lord knows the end from the beginning. The Lord knows the end from the beginning. He knows exactly what is happening before it even happens. All of this, of what is occurring right now, is going to point to a specific blessing that we will be able to apply to our own lives at the end. But we must get through the verses first. We must see what the Lord is talking about and why He is talking about this particular war that is going to occur in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. It says in verse 5, the 14th year, Kedor Leomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Raphim, the Ashtaroth Kanarim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shavah Karithiam, and the Horites in their Mount Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites, who lived in the Hazazon Tamar. Now that is quite a list of names. But what we do see from these four kings that have come together is they have conquered decisively these other territories. The nature of the way the writing is, they have done so apparently without any hiccups. They have not even run into a speed bump along the way that has caused them to slow down their conquering. They have become a battle-hardened group of warriors. We could say they are seemingly unstoppable. The suzerain and his remaining allies have moved through this area in the 14th year. This series of victories that they have is what Moses is using to point to the strength that they have. Five cities are, or areas are conquered in rapid succession. They're a force to be reckoned with. A picture of a force that may be considered unstoppable. And we can say here, right now, that it is a war of the wicked against the wicked. Pagans against pagans is what we see here. And somehow it's all going to point to a blessing, blessings that are coming. It says in verse 8, the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Siddim. Now remember, we just talked about that in verse 2 and 3. Hebrew writing kind of sometimes goes out and then comes back. It'll go out and then come back. 
And we see a little bit of that right here. This is where they have arrayed against the, the, the armies are coming together, right? Uh, the, they're coming to stop them or to take over them. And this is where they come to. That is the Salt Sea. And it says in verse 9, as they do that, against, who are they coming against? A reminder, Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, title king of Goiam, Amraphal, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar. And it says, the scripture, in case you missed it, so you don't have to go back and count, it says, four kings against five. Four kings against five kings. Moses, through the word of the Lord, is painting a picture here. These guys in Sodom and Gomorrah, they have five kings that are going up against four. Five armies come together going against four armies that have come together. It says in verse 10, now, and I'm going to stop halfway through. Now, the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits. We're going to cut that off right there. Just get, painting us a picture of what was there. Now, remember, we would remember some of our New Testament text, right? Luke chapter 14, verse 31 to 32. That as kings go to war, that they should count the costs. Jesus says in Luke 14, verse 31 to 32, or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000, or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. We would assume that this has run through the minds of those kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and their allies. We are told that they are five kings against four. So we can say that perhaps they looked at the cost and they said, our armies are stronger. We have more men. Perhaps they forgot that they're going up against a battle-hardened group of men who have already conquered significant areas in the land. We would hope they did not forget about the tar pits that are in the area where they are fighting. But we're going to find out that that will be a problem. When they came together as allies and ceased in their arrangement, they certainly would have known that this king would not have accepted it. And what happens then in the second part of 10, and it says, And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. They came up against this superior force, this battle-hardened group of men, and they fled. They fell in disarray to the point that as they are escaping, they fall into the tar pits that are noted there. We would understand by the writing that when it says that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and they fell into them, the tar pits, that it is not just the kings themselves that are falling into, into the tar pits, but also members of their forces. 
But those who survived fled to the hill country. Those that survived fled to the hill country. This kind of paints us a picture of what happens. This rebellion is not going the way that they desired. They have been routed in their battle and have fled to the degree that they're falling into probably those things they wish to turn to their advantage, which was the tar pits themselves. That perhaps their plan was not sought out or thought of as well as it should have been, but we remember Isaiah 46.10, which I read, that God, all things are within God's providence, foreordained to bring about the things that He desires that comes to pass, that those things will happen regardless of what we think, that His plans come to pass without any interference from us. And this is all part of His plan that's leading up to something with Abram. But we certainly have a picture of embarrassment that has occurred. That apparently the cost was not weighed. But those that got away fled to the hill country. They fled to the hill country. And it says there in verse 11, then they took Kedor Leomar and his allies, the other three kings, that they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. This is the spoils of war that they have taken. Uh, they have taken everything in the conquered land. You have decided to rebel against us, so I am taking it all. Everything. And then it gives us this note in verse 12. It says, They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, in his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom, in case we forgot that. From back in chapter 13, verse 13. Again, we are reminded that Lot is in Sodom. And we are reminded that Sodom was wicked exceedingly, and they were sinners against the Lord. And Lot was there, that's where he chose to dwell. We remember from last week as he looked out with the land, he had his choice. He looked out and he said this. This is what I want. I see the fertile grounds. I see the land that will support my flocks. This is where I want to live, where the wicked cities are. And that's where he was. Now, they took Lot. What it doesn't say in there, do we... We can think, we don't want to spend too much time, but did Lot fight too? Was he out on the battlefield struggling against these, these, these foreign soldiers? We just don't know. Did they take Lot because they knew who his uncle was and that his uncle was very wealthy? Maybe to hold Lot as ransom for more. We don't know. All that we do know is that they took Lot. He was part of the spoils of war. Now, I will say this is a little unusual that they take Lot, because we know one of the typical things of ancient warfare 
is either you killed the young men or you enslaved the young men. We do know that they took Lot. He is captive of a pagan king. And he has lost everything while Abram still has everything that he has. We look in verse 13. We remember that this is all about a blessing. That's what it's leading to. And it says, then a fugitive came. Okay, so that's somebody that escaped from this. Came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite. Now we recall from the last chapter that that Abram has returned to this area. It is a place where he built an altar to the Lord, a place where he worshipped God. He has put tents there. Remember, this gives us the idea of his uh, the ephemeral nature that that Abram is not uh, he is not building buildings. He's living in tents. He's worshiping the Lord. He's following the guidance of God. This fugitive finds him there. We don't know if the fugitive knew that Abram was Lot's uncle or not. But what we do know is that when he comes there, living at the Oaks of Mamre, which would have been a previous place of pagan worship, that the, at the Oaks of Amri, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Anar, and these were allies with Abram. Notice they're allies. It doesn't say they're God worshipers, but they're allies of Abram. It says in verse 14, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men, born in his house, 318 and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, if this was a full history lesson, we would have a map up there. We would show where they were at. We would show where Dan was at. We would show where all these other towns were, 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 were captured at. We would show where they came from. But at the point, that isn't the main point here. The main point is that Lot found out that his nephew was taken. Lot, who was, sitting, who was staying at the place where he worshipped the Lord. Lot, who was staying at the place where he heard from God. And it says that he took his trained men. We note that they are not necessarily battle-hardened men. We understand that that training comes in, the, the, necessity, the necessary training that comes from living in the wilderness, as they do. That one must be able to defend one's own possessions and people and flocks. That he took those 318 and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. It says in 15 that he divided his forces against them by night. Now, we would know from the Scripture that Abram is in right fellowship at the moment with the Lord. We would also know that Abram has been, we will say, blessed to have these men that are capable in his 
family and in his employment for doing this. Not necessarily professional soldiers, but trained nonetheless. It seems that it is a much smaller force than what they are going up against. But it is all part of God's plan for the blessing that is to come. The coming blessing that is coming. We must consider for a moment the decision to go into battle to rescue his nephew, that there is a level of trust that needs to happen considering that they are facing a battle-hardened army. A battle-hardened king. We have no knowledge that Abram has ever gone into battle before this. Based on all the text up there, he has not. This is full trust in what God is doing, that God has said, I will bless you and your ancestors as the sand of the seashore will find out, the dust of the ground. There is full trust what is happening here. Full trust in what needs to be done. And it says in 15, he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods, and also brought back his relative lot with his possessions, and also the women and the people. This was certainly a successful rescue mission, to the point that they routed the enemy forces. We must not forget the fact that there are people that died, certainly died during these battles to get them back. Probably people from bo on both sides that died. We would know that they would assume that death was coming when they went into battle. Yet Abram trusts the Lord in what needs to be done to rescue his errant nephew, the errant nephew who chose to live in the land of wickedness all of which is pointing to the blessing that is to come. Genesis chapter 14, verse 17. So we've had the war. We had the allies. We had the war. We had the rescue. Lot is back with his uncle at the moment with all of his possessions. Abram has brought back everything that was taken by these other forces. He has routed the enemy kings. And as exciting as the rescue mission was, we now arrive at the heart of the matter. First we note, we could say in verse 17 where it says, then after his return from the defeat of Kedor Leomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, the king of the wicked town, went out to meet him. The king who had fallen, or forces have fallen into the tar pits, came out to meet him. At the valley of Shavah, that is, the king's valley. This man of the wicked town came out to see, to perhaps congratulate them on their stunning victory. But verse 18. A new player is here. 
someone we have not heard of before. And it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and now he was priest of God Most High. There are many fascinating things about that. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. King of Salem means he is the king of Jerusalem. It brought him bread and wine, which is in celebratory fashion, which comes out. And it says he was priest of God Most High. A interesting set of words, fascinating set of words that is used here in the Hebrew. El Elyon is what it is. It is specifically used here for Melchizedek to indicate his difference between worshiping the true God and those who worship pagan gods. The Canaanite god, El. Elion means something far different. El Elion means the God Most High, the God above everything. The true God means Yahweh. This is a worshiper of God previously unknown in Scripture. It says not only was he a king, but he was a priest of the God Most High. He is entirely different than the king of Sodom who came out, who is a king of a wicked city. Here we have the king of a right of righteousness who comes out, a king of peace who comes out. A king who has no apparent lineage comes out. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 3 tells us that he has neither father nor mother that we know of. This is certainly fascinating when we meet Melchizedek, considering how many genealogies we have had in the Scripture up until this point. And here he is, he just comes out, the king of Salem, king of Jerusalem, king of righteousness, a priest of God, of Yahweh. It is interesting, too, that it, although it was fairly common practice in other nations that the king would also be a high priest, we would find that when God establishes his kingdom in Exodus, that the priest line and the king line are somewhat separated. Yet here, there is something here that is for a reason what we find. This would be the inauguration of the kingly priest or the king priest that we see here that Jesus will be. If you would turn to Psalm chapter uh, Psalm 110 for a moment. It is a royal psalm written by David. A prophetic psalm written by David. says in verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. If you go to verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. The second mention of Melchizedek in the Scripture 
is in Psalm 110. The other mentions that we have of Melchizedek in the Scripture are in the book of Hebrews, where he quotes Psalm 110 in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Then if you turn to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10, I should say verse 9 or so. Give me a moment. In verse, we'll start in verse 8. Make it 7. About Jesus. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned, disobe- he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Then go to verse uh, chapter 6, verse 19. This hope that is in Jesus we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Then chapter 7, verse 11. Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? In other words, this is a forever priestly line that Jesus is part of. He would repeat in verse 17 of chapter 7, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This person right here who has brought bread and wine out to the field of battle. This priest of the God Most High, and it says in verse 19 that he blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abram. And said, blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram's response was, he gave him a tenth of all. Now, if you look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2, it may have in italics in your Bible, it may say he gave him a tenth of the spoils. Some people think that's what it means. But we'll see here that it looks like, and more accurate to say, that Abram gave him a tenth of everything that he had. And there's a reason we're going to say that. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But keep that in mind. This Melchizedek is so great and so recognized that Abram gives him a tenth of everything. Here you go. This is before any tithing rules were established. There was a recognition of who this man is as not only a high priest, but a king of God Most High. We could almost see that 
Abram would be supplicating before him, recognizing who this man is. Now, he is not Jesus, but he is Christ-like. There is something about this blessing that we have been working up to in this passage that is so important that Abram receives. This blessing and this recognition that he gets from this man of God without beginning or end. We see the contrast in verse 21. Abram has given a tenth of all that he has to Melchizedek. Verse 21, the king of Sodom says to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. The wicked king says, take of all these things. Take of all these things that you've brought back. Right? So we have the righteous king who Abram has given to, and we have the wicked king who says, take of. And what's Abram's response? Right after he has been blessed. He listens to the wicked king's offer. And in 22, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, El Elyon, same words used here, possessor of heaven and earth. Notice how he is repeating back words that Melchizedek had said in verse 19. God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Abram is saying, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, the one who has created everything, who owns everything, who is the one who causes the grass to grow and the sun to shine, who is not an absentee landowner, but one who is intimately involved in his creation. I have sworn to this God who has protected me in this battle to bring back my nephew. I have sworn to this God, the only God, the God most high, the God above everything. I have sworn to him, and it says in 23, I will not take a thread of a sandal, thong, or anything that is yours, wicked king. For fear, you would say, I have made Abram rich. He is denying what the world is offering to worship the God that he knows. And let me tell you, it would be tempting to take what the king of Sodom is offering. But he knows his blessing is from God and God alone. Abram knows his blessing is from God and God alone. Confirmed in the anointing that was done by Melchizedek. He trusts in what the Lord is doing. And I'll say this with care. He is learning to trust in what the Lord is doing. He had a couple hiccups a couple chapters ago. He'll have a couple hiccups later on. But he is learning and trusting in what God is doing. He says in 24, I will take nothing except, this is fascinating, and this is why I say back there that when he gives a tenth, it's out of what his own wealth is. He said, I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten. Fascinating, right? Because you can't give back what has already been eaten. And the share of the men who went with me. 
I would take those allies that went with me. Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre. Who went with me, Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their share from you. So I'm taking the men that come with me, and these other allies, Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their share from you. They're not God worshipers, but for me, I'm not going to make the mistake in my witness by taking from you. My witness is one in trust in the Lord. I've been blessed by what the Lord is doing. I've been blessed in what is happening here. I can give my things away to this righteous king of the Lord, this righteous priest of the Lord, Melchizedek, because it's, number one, it's all yours to begin with. And so we come to the end, we, we, we see, we have a war, we have a rescue, we have the blessing, but it is all about the blessing. It is all about what has been done here. It is all about Abram who is worshiping the God Most High. And trusting in the God Most High with how God is blessing him. We could say that the gift of the blessing was, is discernment. One of the gifts that has happened here. He immediately discerns that he should not take anything from this wicked king of Sodom. That it was a temptation that came right on the heels of a blessing that he received. A temptation that came right on the heels of a blessing that he received. Many of us may have experienced such things in our lives in the Christian walk. The sin offer that comes right at the end of good Bible study. Or comes right out the door when we walk out of worship service. But he discerns that he serves God most high. That the good was to be blessed by the Lord. If we look at Psalm, if we, excuse me, if we look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is what Abram's getting to. That poor in spirit, as I've said before, is not woe is me. It's the poorest spirit is realizing that everything you have comes from the God Most High. The possessor of heaven and earth. Your poor in spirit is, is that as the beggar that is sitting behind, before the gates of the city and waiting for those things to come to you that the Lord is giving to you. He gives you exactly what you need when you need it. And when you recognize this, that it is all the Lord's work, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They see the kingdom of heaven here already. Working. All that I have is from the Lord. That head blessing that comes in the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. We see here that Abram is learning and becoming fully dependent upon the Lord. He is blessed by a high priest and a king of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and our blessing comes from the highest priest, the highest king, the creator of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ Himself.
when we know the Lord, when we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we can act and react in situations correctly, scripturally. Because we know that all we have is from the Lord. If you would turn to John chapter 3, verse 27, all that we have from the Lord is from the Lord, including the greatest blessing we could have, our salvation and restoration to right standing with God. 3.27, John 3.27, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. He can receive nothing unless it is given to him from heaven. Everything we have comes from God. Everything we have comes from God. In Him, we are blessed. In Jesus Christ, we are blessed with the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus Christ, we are blessed with life everlasting. In Him, we are blessed with being able to go directly to Him. To pray directly to God. In Him, we are given forgiveness. In Him, we are given repentance. We are given the ability to repent. In Him, we are given the ability to not only be forgiven, but to also forgive. Because everything on this planet is God's. There is not a single atom in this universe that is not the Lord's. He has, in Christ Jesus, in our Lord and Savior, we have the blessed, the blessing of being humble and being humbled. To know who God is is a true blessing. To know what the Lord has done is a true blessing. To know what God continues to do is a true blessing. To be like Abram and not building edifices to ourselves, but living a tent-like lifestyle, understanding that this life is temporary, but eternal life is Surprise, eternal, that we have in Him. Through the salvific work of Christ Jesus, we have all that we could possibly desire. Much like Melchizedek met Abram out there and blessed him, when Jesus came to us and blessed us, we gladly give it all to Him and for His glory we reject the wickedness of this world. And when we don't, we repent. We have found riches unimaginable and freedom incomprehensible in salvation which the angels long to understand that we will contemplate for an eternity and glorify God in doing so in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we look to the work that God has done 3,000 years ago. We see the unfailing hand of rescue that came by God's design to rescue Lot. We see how Melchizedek was brought to Abram and to bless him. And we know that God's hand has not erred. We know that God's hand has not erred when salvation came to us. when we trust 
and a Savior that saves completely. Therefore, we hold on lightly to this life. We seek to glorify God while we do. And I will end on this quote, and then a moment of prayer. I will end on this quote from Jim Elliott. Uh, the missionary died in 1957. Uh, killed by Indians down in South America on a mission trip. He was killed with three other people, I believe. Who his son would go back to that same group of people and evangelize them 20 years later. And they would become believers. He said this. <clears throat> Excuse me. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Remember this. When found in Christ, we cannot lose anything. We have gained everything in Him. Let's bow our heads. Father God, we come before You as humble believers that seek to understand Your ways. We seek to not go past the Scriptures, but to understand what You've given is perfectly and completely essential and adequate for all our needs. We ask that You're with us throughout this day. We ask that You give us the courage to give the Gospel to those who don't know it. We ask that You would strengthen us in times of trouble and You would also strengthen us in times when there is no trouble. That we would ask that You lead us in the, the green pastures of Your Holy Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. If you would please stand and join us while we...